so long as I'm proud of it and I think that what we've done is something that we can all be proud of, as long as I've done right by my actors, as long as the cut makes my DP proud, that's what I'm really hoping for. If it really catches an audience and something beautiful happens, amazing. Hello, welcome to This Is My Cinema, the podcast from Biffa, the British Independent Film Awards that is celebrating all things cinema. I'm Rihanna Dillon. And I'm Michael Leader. And Rihanna, it's the morning after the night before. Mm. Last night was the Biffa Awards themselves. If you haven't seen them, make sure you head to Facebook and YouTube to catch up right now. But just because the awards have happened doesn't mean the podcast stops. We're here with one more episode exploring the cinematic experiences of another member of the British filmmaking community. But before we get to that, I need to ask the most important member of our community, Michael Leader, a very important question. What is the perfect cinema snack? You know, Rihanna, first of all, thank you. But also, <laughs> this podcast has been a journey of discovery where you think that some of your little cinema rituals may be specific to you, that you're a you know, wonderful, unique human being, and then you realise everybody likes salt and sweet popcorn <laughs> in a cocktail mix. I know, I was thinking that. I was thinking, oh, I just feel really not at all special or unique right now. Because that is exactly what I like, and I do like to do the, the layering. If I'm in the UK, minstrels on top yes. really good. Something with harder shell so it doesn't melt. I like milk duds if I'm in the States. That's a good sort of hard oh. caramel sweet. I've, I'm, yeah, I'm a big chocolate eater. So that's my thing. Yes, cinemas. I love Revels as well. And I mean, to be honest, I'll eat anything in the cinema. But I will always go up with a very large glass of wine and then get my boyfriend to go and get me another one midway through the film. So I don't miss anything. That's so, what yeah. they're for. <laughs> <laughs> what are you drinking in the cinema? I'm a coffee drinker. I, I, mm. I, go, I, I go in with a good black coffee, depending nice. on the time of day, of course. I wouldn't be doing that at a late night screening. Oh, God. oh absolutely not. No. <laughs> <laughs> now, our guest today is very exciting because he's been part of our screen landscape for a long time now. He's currently making his first feature film as director and was a member of the Biffa jury. It's Reggie Yates. You know, this was such a fascinating conversation because I don't think there are enough hyphens to join up all the different things that Reggie has done. But it's so clear how important filmmaking is to him and to talk to him about his journey was just so nice. Yeah, and lovely to hear the stories about the cinemas he'd visit in his youth and the films that he was seeking out and also how they've influenced Pirates, the film that he's just finished shooting. So here he is. It's Reggie Yates. Hi listeners, a quick warning just before we start. There's some strong language in this episode, so please be mindful of who's listening and do not listen if you are offended by swearing. Okay, on with the show. Reggie Yates, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking with us today. So for the duration of this conversation, this is your cinema. And what we're doing with all our guests on this podcast is we're giving you free reign of a cinema screen for one evening. And the important question to start with is if you had free reign of a cinema screen, what film would you subject us to? <laughs> subject is an interesting choice of words. Um, I'd like to think that my choice wouldn't be trash. So hopefully you'd actually enjoy it. It's funny because the film that I've watched the most times isn't my favourite film. So the film that I've seen most in my life is Coming to America, closely followed by Home Alone 1. Because they were films that I had on VHS as a kid that I just battered and watched over and over again. But neither are my favourite film. I love both, but uh, neither are my favourite. My, I guess the film that has influenced me most would be the film that I would want to share with people. 
And that is Lehend by Matthew Kasovitz. Oh. And I did a really cool screening of the film for the BFI at their South Bank Cinema. It was sold out. We did a sit-down conversation about the film prior to going in. And I remember seeing it at the age of 14. I used to do my chores on a Sunday. And one of my chores was to iron all of my, my mother and my stepfather's clothes for work for the week, as well as my school clothes. <laughs> and I remember I was ironing this pile of clothes begrudgingly and there was this black and white film on BBC Two on a Sunday night and I was reading the subtitles and not ironing and like 10 minutes later I just stopped ironing and I was just watching this film and the thing that really got me about it was that it was a really small story of children of immigrants but it felt cinematic in a way that I'd never seen before and it just really opened my mind to this idea that Maybe one day I can tell a story about people like me, people from the same area as me, people who have the same outlook, who've grown up around the same sort of uh, environment, and it feel like a movie. Not only was it inspiring, but it's a bloody good movie too. It really is. I remember learning about that at college, and that was right. what taught me about like diegetic music, non-diegetic, because you know it shifts from one to the other in that incredible scene. What a what a movie! You're definitely going to be subjected to, <laughs> to that. Like everyone would be queuing up around the block to go yeah. and see that film. Yeah, it's a classic. I think if you've not seen it, it's definitely something you need in your library. It's such a good gateway as well because it's such, such an enjoyable, thrilling film, entertaining film, but mm. then leads you in all these directions if you want to go deeper into French cinema or anything else. I find it interesting you saw that when you were 14 because, well, Elephant in the Room, you're so prolific in terms of your career and you wear so many hats over the years. However, like film has clearly been part of that whole journey and particularly in the last 10 years or so, writing, directing shorts, now all the way up to making a feature. Could you give us a taste of your love of film across your life? If that's 14, you see La Haine, where do you go from there? <laughs> yeah, so I am, I'm one of those really annoying people who has had sort of lives running parallel that have shouted at different volumes simultaneously. And my life uh, on national radio at Radio 1 and primetime at the BBC on top of the Pops and The Voice and those sorts of programmes and that sort of programming shouts a hell of a lot louder than me getting a development deal as a writer that mm. was happening at the same time. So, you know, coming into the industry at eight years old, you know, you start... Uh, acting alongside people that you've watched your in entire life, your entire short life, and you're, you're massively inspired. And I sort of found myself at quite a young age needing to be multidisciplined because there have always been different things that I'm interested in. So while I was on Grange Hill, for instance, I was on pirate radio in North London pre-Radio 1. I was literally running from the police with records um, <laughs> because I was broadcasting on illegal radio. And then, you know, fast forward a few years and you're on One Extra launching the, the country's first black music national radio station. So my journey in film has always sort of been a consistent one. It's just not been one that's been on the radar of the audience that might have been watching me on CBBC or whatever. I never knew you and Tony Blackburn had so much <laughs> That's my guy. <laughs> Tony B. So who are those like filmmakers early on that you were really kind of watching and inspired by and you felt sort of represented you? Yeah, maybe, well, um, it wasn't so much about representing me. It was more about representing my taste um, because you know, I'm 38 this year. I'm a child of the 80s and I'm very much part of the VHS generation. And coming from a West African family, you know, my mum my and my dad came to this country from Ghana in their teens. And there is this really crazy culture of 
sort of collecting things and having a library of things. So they would keep their uh, tapes in pristine condition and label them. And you know that little paper thing you got with like master and all the letters and numbers they would use. They're the only people that use them on their tapes to sort of identify what was on there. But they were also just as anal when it came to VHS. So all the videos were switched to long play and you'd get two or three movies on a TDK VHS. And I grew up watching the movies that my mother was obsessed by, my uncles were, and that was everything from the movies by Spike Lee, right the way through to John Hughes movies, even going into a little further into the 90s. And like Luc Besson was a big thing. Like I remember being obsessed by Leon and not understanding how this young actor in Natalie Portman could do what she was doing because I was going to drama club and I was shit. <laughs> and, she was, and, and I was I was a working actor. I was getting jobs on national television. And there's this girl who's younger than me, who looked younger than me, who's a couple of years older, but just looked like a baby was doing things that I didn't think were possible from a child. So God, I mean everything, the Coens, like I was the only kid that was sort of watching Fargo and then, you know, playing basketball in the estate 10 minutes later, like, because I just drank in as much content as I could as a kid. And I was sort of allowed to watch TV and videos and film kind of became my my mate in a lot of ways. Mm. And TV has been just as influential for me as film in a lot of ways, because, you know, the HBO golden era was massively filmic in a lot of ways, like Six Feet Under and Sopranos. They all felt like movies to me. And those shows definitely became part of my my film education. Where were you watching some of those films? If you had to go to the cinema in your like your local area, a were you going with your mates? Were you going with your parents, seeing as yeah. they were so influential? And where were you watching them? Well, you sort of like anyone, regardless of where you've grown up or what class you are, race you are, whatever. There is that point in your teens where you instantly shun anything that your parents have to say, and you try and find your own path. So I started to go to the cinema on my own with friends. Uh, and this started happening from about the age of 13 and 14. And Some of my favorite experiences as a teenager out with my friends wasn't being in a club because I loved that. And UK Garage was a huge part of my formative years. And I'd go to those clubs and I was on Pirate Radio and I loved it. But like, I'll never forget being at Screen on the Green in Islington, my pal Danny on a Friday night watching Lockstock and just being blown away by these characters on screen that felt like, the people that I grew up around, you know, like there were all of these cockney criminals that were my uncles, that were Danny's dad and Danny's uncles. And <laughs> suddenly they were on screen, but even more so, it was that shared experience of being in a cinema where you were surrounded by cinephiles. And, you know, those, those independent cinemas like Picture House, like Screen on the Green, for instance, or even the Rio cinemas, all of these sort of places that I found myself watching films reminded me that I wasn't alone in the passion that I had for cinema and to be a nerd obsessed by who wrote it who shot it who lit it and, and all of those things that have now massively informed the things that, that I'm spending all of my time doing well could you tell us about that then so when you come to sit down and write a screenplay or direct a short or direct a feature as with pirates are you finding these influences coming in from the stuff you were watching as a kid or are you sort of finding your own voice yet well yeah I have that unique sort of journey for want of a less cheesy documentary word but I have that sort of unique journey where I started out as an actor so a lot of what I've learned has been through osmosis you know I never went to film school I didn't study film I mean the closest I've come to 
studying film, was doing media at City Islet and College in North London. But I was on set and I've had every kind of director you can imagine. I've had the good directors, the bad ones, the angry ones, the really nice ones. I've had every kind of director. And I've also had every kind of writing. You know, I've been Nathan four times, who's the best friend of the white lead and doesn't have many lines, but he's a nice boy. Like, mm. <laughs> I've played these characters and you sort of get to a point as an actor, well, I certainly did, where I just wanted to see something different. So I fell out of love with acting and decided to create the content that I desperately wanted to see because it felt as though our American cousins were doing it without any problem. I just didn't see anybody doing it here with that, that level of, uh, of thought and care. So my writing has been heavily influenced by my experiences uh, as somebody on set and somebody who's read scripts and gone for auditions and discussed ideas about character with writers right the way through to just educating myself in, in cinema and reading every book and watching every lecture online and, and actually doing the work because I, I love the writers that make writing out to be far more complicated than it actually is. A lot of it is actually just sitting down and doing the work and being willing to be rubbish, being willing to, to show people your work and be told it's crap and learn from that and get better. And I wrote maybe 10 screenplays before I showed, one, showed it to my management. And that then led to them going, holy shit, okay, you're not crap, but you're not amazing. Let's work on this. And then that's when the short films happen. So yeah, it's definitely through doing and through osmosis, being on set and being around people who are both good and bad. What can you tell us about Pirates? This is the feature film you've written, directed, just yeah. recently finished, finished the shoot during lockdown, I think. Yeah. But what, what can you tell us about it? So <laughs> we were one of those unfortunate films that were shooting at the beginning of COVID and we got shut down. So what was supposed to be like a 25, 28 day shoot ended up being a 250 day shoot or something <laughs> stupid like that with a massive gap between. We returned to set to finish off the film. And I just feel incredibly lucky because I had that time to watch my rushes, see what I've got, rewrite an intro and change certain elements and also cut everything that I'd shot, which never happens if you're a first time filmmaker. So COVID has been good to me in a lot of ways. So I guess for those that don't know, which is probably everyone, because we're not really talking about pirates that much at the moment. Pirates is essentially a film about a version of London that I've never seen on screen. And it's a time capsule for the UK garage scene in a lot of ways. So it's a film essentially about friendship. It's a coming of age movie. It's about three kids driving from North London to South London on New Year's Eve 1999 to try and get into Twice as Nice. That is pretty much what it's about, but there is so much more to it. It's friendship, it's love, it's all of those things. And part of the reason that this film feels essential for me, and I kind of have to say it because I wrote the thing, um, is that, you know, it's, this, uh, it's a film about the stuff that happens between the landmarks, because so often we see London presented in a way that is a version of what we've seen before. But what we haven't seen are those kids who are children of immigrants and white working class who all speak using the same slang and all have the same influences and support the same football team and don't want to be in a gang. They don't want to carry a weapon. You know, there isn't a gun or knife in this movie and it's heartbreaking <laughs> that I have to make that point because this isn't about that. It's about friendship and it's about guys that want to get into the party and ultimately just want to secure their friendship and get the girl. And because of that, what we've got is a film that is heavily influenced by Lehen in a lot of ways, by those coming of age John Hughes movies like The Breakfast Club, etc. And I just really hope that 
there is a 14 year old version of me who sees this and says, oh, I, I recognize that version of London. I want to share my version of it. And I mean, there are so many questions to ask you as a first time yeah. feature filmmaker, but what immediately springs to mind is the idea of the sort of independent British film industry. How welcoming was that scene for you? It's weird because I, I because of COVID, I haven't really been active in a lot of ways. And mm. because of my short films, I found myself stepping into it, but in the smallest of scale. There have been a lot of people encouraging me and a lot of people supporting me. So to answer your question, I think that, yeah, I've been really fortunate, but I don't think that that is because people are just being nice. I think it's because I work bloody hard. Um, mm. You know, I put my hand in my pocket to make my first short film and I didn't spend much money on it, but my DP gave me his beautiful Ari Alexa for free for the day. So we saved a hell of a lot of money on a rental charge. And that was because he really loved the script. And that wasn't the first short that I've written. It was maybe the 40th. I think that my journey as a filmmaker will be one that is not scowled at in a lot of ways, but I think that there might be a presumption that doors have just been held open for me because of what's come before. You know, there aren't many directors that could go on Loose Women <laughs> or have already done it <laughs> several times. Or would want to. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like, I've been on, I've been on Bloody Loose Women. Jesus, I'm the voice of Rastamouse. Like, I've done so many different things in my career that there might be a presumption that the doors have just been held open for me and mm. people are just saying, well, he's got an audience in Bill. Of course they're going to support him. Well, that wouldn't be the case if the work wasn't any good. And... I've been incredibly fortunate in collaborating with people who I've admired for years. Three of my short films were cast by Shaheen Baig, who, in my opinion, should win at the Biffers and is one of, if not the best casting director in this country. We love Shaheen. She's amazing. We do. She's amazing. And she's not worked with me because she thinks I wear nice suits. She worked with me because she likes the work. And mm. the same goes for the actors and the same goes for my team. And I've just been incredibly fortunate to collaborate with BBC Film and Rose Garnet and the BFI and you know they've not only funded me but they've supported me and really helped me get this film over the line in what is one of the weirdest times to make a film let alone be a first-time filmmaker and the most hilarious thing about this is I don't know any different I don't know what it's like to make a movie normally yeah yeah I, I feel like I've been embraced and I can honestly say with my hand on my heart that I've been embraced for the right reasons because I work my ass off I was just looking at the cast that you've got on Pirates and they all just seem very new breakthrough, newcomers. They're all words that are kind of attached to. There's some incredible talent in this film from the three leads right the way through to all of the supporting characters. And I think that we've just not just lucked out in terms of the talent that we've got, but also the right person was casting it. Shaheen has an incredible gift at finding new talent and she also is unbelievably collaborative and would hear me and understood what I wanted. And, you know, I sat in on every audition and it was a really strange time because I was casting uh, another project that I was making simultaneously. And it was just an unbelievably different experience being in the room for one film as a producer and writer and in the other film as a writer, director, producer. And the difference was unbelievable. Um, and to do those things at the same time has been one hell of an education. What was the difference? Well, film is a director's medium, right? So the director runs the show. To write something and live with it and create it and do the research and to, to, to be really transparent that the project I'm talking about is a film that I wrote called uh, Make Me Famous for uh, the BBC. 
And this is a part of a long tradition of, of dramas such as Murder by My Boyfriend, Murder by My Father, Killed Because I'm Different. This is a film about the relationship between young people, social media and suicide. And that was something that was an incredibly difficult project to get right because it's such a sensitive issue. And so to live with that, create that craft, that do the research, ask the questions, interview people who have been on all of these shows and write this screenplay and create a fictional character in Billy who I felt was a real person by the end of it. And then to hand it over to somebody else to make it visual, to make it something tangible and 3D was both awesome, but heartbreaking all at the same time. So the difference was shutting up and allowing somebody else to express themselves, regardless of the fact that they're expressing themselves through your words. <laughs> but thankfully, I wasn't sort of doing that and going home and crying. I was going home and then watching self-tapes for Pirates and then being in the room with Pirates the next day. So bouncing between the two made it easier. And so what's it like being a director on set where everyone's coming up to you asking questions? Do you take that responsibility lightly? No. <laughs> uh, it's wild. I remember counting and I think in one half hour period, I got asked over 100 questions. And <laughs> oh my God. I mean, I've got four sisters, so I'm used to a lot of questioning, but it was unlike anything I've ever experienced. One of the best pieces of advice I got from Jan Damage actually, who's like, he hates me calling him a mentor. He's not a mentor. He's like, I'm not your flipping mentor. I'm your peer, bruv. So he's not my mentor, but he's someone who helps me a lot. And Jan said, don't be scared to say you don't know. And that was dope. That was really, really helpful. So there were points where I'd be like, you know what? I'm not sure. What do you think? And to be able to discuss options with your, with your DP, who has to be your best friend or it's a wrap. It was brilliant because it felt incredibly collaborative. And, and I think that what I have is something that, the entire team that made it real will be proud of. It's such an interesting point to speak to you in in, in this sort of career moment. Yeah. Like when we talk to debut filmmakers, they're often putting their work in front of people for the first time on a scale they've never had to before. But you've done you know, TV, you've had to do live wire stuff or, or on radio. So it's are you, is there any sort of anxiety about when people finally see this or are you just taking it all in your stride? Do you know what there was, but there isn't anymore. And that's not because I think I've made the best film ever. I've made something I'm proud of and how it's received is how it's received. I think because I've written so much that hasn't been greenlit, I have this attitude now of you do the work, you put everything into it and then you move on. And if Pirates doesn't resonate, then it doesn't resonate. So long as I'm proud of it, and I think that what we've done is something that we can all be proud of, as long as I've done right by my actors, as long as the cut makes my DP proud, that's what I'm really hoping for. If it really catches an audience and something beautiful happens, amazing. But nothing is promised. And I've seen films that are incredible that nobody else has seen. So sometimes the brilliant films don't find an audience, but hopefully they do eventually. So my attitude is whatever happens, happens. And, you know... I've written a hell of a lot of other stuff. So <laughs> my mind's already on uh, what could happen after, uh, regardless of whether it's a success or not. Do you have in mind a perfect place for it to screen? Like you'd feel proud if it's in a local cinema. Like I think of these filmmakers who, you know, might have films that show around the world at Cannes, wherever, but they are most proud when it's in their local two screen Sleep at cinema. Uh, so I grew up in Islington, in North London, right? And I grew up on the Holloway end of Islington. And this is before Holloway was as shiny and new as it is now, right? And the road that I grew up on is a road called Liverpool Road, which starts in Holloway at this council block that I grew up in and ends in Angel at the Sainsbury's and Chapel Market, right? So super shiny one end, pretty crappy at the other end, right? 
And the first time I went to the cinema was at the Holloway Odeon. And I remember going there on a regular basis. And I know that they've refurbed it now and it's a very different place, but back then it was dirt cheap and nobody went. And that was where I saw Jurassic Park. That was where I saw The Matrix. That was where I really had some amazing cinematic experiences. But as I started to really get into cinema, I wanted to be in a screen that didn't have people talking or fighting or having dry sex in the back row. <laughs> <laughs> so I started to go to screen on the green on Upper Street because it was my local. Like I love Picture House and I go to Picture House and the curves on all the time now, but screen on the green was the cinema that I would go to. And I had those experiences, like seeing, like I said, Lockstock there. They've got this gorgeous marquee out front where they put the names of the movies up. And if I one day am driving past and I see one of my films on that marquee, it'll be a moment. It'll be a moment because I've walked down Liverpool Road from the shitty part of Holloway to the lovely part of Angel, cut across and gone to screen on the green so many times in my teens. And as an adult, I drive up there now and it just takes me back to being a kid and really finding cinema on my own terms. Mm. So that would be amazing. That and Peckham Premier, because <laughs> Peckham Premier is a great little screen. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> We're obviously here because we're talking about British independent film and Biffa Awards. What is exciting you the most about the current landscape of British independent films? And how have you noticed it change over the past few years? Well, it's, it's great because it doesn't feel like everybody's doing their version of Kitchen Sink anymore, you know? We've got movies like St. Maud coming out at the same time as Rocks. And that just says everything about the variety and the breadth of filmmakers that are out there. Because at one point, everybody wanted to be Ken Loach. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. But we can be cinematic. We can be big. We can have scale here in the UK as well. And to know that, you know, we've got everything from Edgar Wright and Matthew Vaughan right the way through to movies like His House coming out of the UK. That is incredibly exciting because it speaks to a generation of filmmakers that are influenced by lots of different things. So I think it's the healthiest it's ever been, certainly for me as someone who, you know, subscribed to Empire and Red Sight and Sound since I was about 13, like to want to desperately find our version of a Coen Brothers or something like that. It feels like we're on the cusp of it now. I was thinking about your TV doc from a couple of years ago about the Black Renaissance in yeah. Hollywood TV. And even though that's only 2019, I mean, so much in the political landscape and social landscape has changed, but so many of the core issues are still the same. I mean, that doc talked about Atlanta and Dear White People and those sorts of series at the time. It feels like in our own way, the British screen landscape has had our own little moment like that in the last year. I May Destroy You, Small Axe. And the film landscape is sort of having a similar moment too, maybe? I don't know. Do you have a, a perspective on that? Yeah, I think that voices that don't feel as consistent with what we'd expect from a particular place are being embraced in a way that they never have done. And that is incredibly encouraging. I'm really proud of that documentary because not only was it something that I made with one of my best friends, who's actually nominated actually at the Biffers. My producer on that is a guy called Yemi Vermiro who I've known since I was about 17 and he directed One Man in His Shoes, which is yeah, an incredible, cool. yeah, incredible documentary about Michael Jordan. He directed that documentary that we made on the Black Renaissance. And we both came away incredibly inspired from that. In fact, the whole team did because we felt like we'd met our American equivalents who were that bit further along, both because of self-belief and because of investment in them and their talent. And when you see Michaela being invested in, in the way that she has done, not so much with Chewing Gum, but with I May Destroy You, for 
peers at BBC Drama to get behind her and say, do you know what, how you want to tell this story, we will back you in, is a beautiful thing because she deserves the SAG. Let's not talk about the Golden Globes, mm -hmm. but for her to be nominated at the SAG Awards for that is huge because she has made something that is uncompromising, uniquely British and very much like, I, I interviewed her for GQ and I said it to her and I made her cry, come on. Like <laughs> anybody that does interviews, if you can make them cry, it's a big win. But I, I had to thank her because I'd never seen that version of my London on screen, regardless of big or small. And that's something that we've had forever with John Singleton and Spike Lee and all these black filmmakers. Like I feel like I know New York largely because of Spike Lee, but I don't know if there is a kid in Brooklyn who knows Brixton. And not to say that he has to, uh, because the Brixton that exists today is very different. I don't know if you've been to the village, but that wasn't there when I was, <laughs> I was going there in my teens. I was stuck in Angel Town trying to dodge. Anyway, that's a different story. Um, but, <laughs> I want to hear that story. Uh, Brixton, Brixton today is a very different Brixton to the one that I grew up in, but the stories that have made London what it is haven't been put on screen. And for Small Axe to start as much conversation as it did from something that is quite linear in its storytelling, like, like Mangrove and, you know, historical in a lot of ways, right the way through to something that's a bit more of an art piece like Lover's Rock, where you've got that beautiful Michael Ward story, like a love story happening to the backdrop of this house party. Mm. There are so many sides to the life of an immigrant in this country, which is why I love the fact that we have Riz doing the work that he's doing because he's speaking for so many people as well. So it just sort of, it just shines a light on the fact that, yeah, it's great that we have one or two or three people that are really being recognized globally for the work that they're doing, but we need more because Riz doesn't speak for everyone and he can't. And he's doing an incredible job of speaking for so many. So is Michaela, so is Steve, so are so many, so is Shola Amu, so, so many people speaking for communities that have never been presented in that way before but there has to be more there just has to be more of us it's it's something that's already been a theme within this podcast where we're talking about people who maybe they go off and make hollywood films they make all sorts of films around the world but it is also about representing something that's close to them home to them whether that is rural island yes, yeah, or, yeah. or wherever and i'm what i'm excited for the next stage is you know, we've had this amazing rush of london-centric films from different backgrounds but there's still so much of the rest of the country yes. where there are people who are underrepresented too and yeah I know that it's that would be a really fascinating next stage. I think the really interesting thing about that is that a film like Calm with Horses, for instance, has yeah. such a huge audience, not because it's an Irish story, but because it's a human story. And it's just specific to where it's from and where it's based. And I love that. And that specificity is what is missing. Like, I, I want to know what it is like to be Greek Cypriot in London. I want to know more about what it's like to be a teenage Polish kid you know, who loves Afrobeat, like, who is that kid? Where, where is his movie? You know, <laughs> like, there, there are so many, like, I can't help but be London-centric because I do think it's the greatest city in the world and I do think that we have so many communities here that are fascinating and we're all living next door to each other. So there are so many stories that exist side by side, but it is so much broader than that. There is so much out there and Calm with Horses is a great example of a film that feels very sort of 70s New York in a lot of ways in terms of the story that's being told, but at the same time, it's undeniably it is what it is without trying to be anything else. And that's the kind of filmmakers, I, 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 filmmaking that I want to see more of. 
speaking as cinema being so universal, can you think of a moment where you're watching a film and there was a moment in that that you were just so thankful that you were in a cinema with loads of other people to experience <laughs> it alongside? <laughs> yes, hell yeah. All I'm going to do is one noise and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh my right? God. Yes, <laughs> right? that is a great shout. Right? That is such a good one. So being in the cinema watching Hereditary with a group of pals and like, you're talking about a group of guys, like all of us, <laughs> six one, six two, six three, all big burly guys. And all of us were shitting our pants. <laughs> and I'll never forget my friend Bubba, who's like one of the coolest guys ever. But he was so scared, he basically put his hoodie on and pulled it super tight like Kenny, <laughs> Kenny from South Park. And there was just this tiny little, <laughs> tiny little window that he was looking through because he was so scared. Um, I think it was that sound in Hereditary was, was one of the moments. And also the decapitation moment just made everybody scream and jump. And it was just fantastic. And that's why we love cinema. And I think that's. It's moments like that that make me miss being able to sit with strangers and watch something, you know? Like, oh God, I remember, like, the feeling in the room during Uncut Gems. Everybody felt anxious, scared, frustrated. And I sort of, like, I'll never forget it. Like, it finished. And half the screen couldn't get up. (laughs) The lights came on. And we were all just looking at it. We sat in Picture House. And everybody's just looking at each other like, what have we just been through together? Like, this is incredible. Like, I've never taken a pee in the toilets afterwards. Everyone's like... Bloody hell, mate. I know, I know. Bloody hell. God, I need a pint. I know. And I, I don't even drink. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I, I love hearing you talk about these experiences. It makes me want to go back and rewatch all those films. Yeah. I, mean, I never want to see great. Uncut Gems again. <laughs> I couldn't do I, that to oh, myself. <laughs> I'd love to see that again. And what's great is that, you know, every, it's a sort of a bit of a dad question, really, when you say, like, oh, once you know how the sausage is made, can you still enjoy it? But clearly, you know, you've you've read all the screenplay manuals or whatever in order to make all these shorts, but you can still like, really enjoy it. Getting oh, absolutely. Once you're a film fan, you're a film fan. And it just almost becomes a much more beautiful experience when a film gets you. And you know in that first act if it's got you or not. And it's that whole suspension of disbelief thing. Like, if I've not fallen out of the film within the first 20 minutes, that's it. I'm in. I'm in. And I just have a great time. Like, you know, I mentioned the Safdie brothers. They are just people that I just look at and think, oh, my God, one day I hope to just shake your hand and and ask, how do you do that? Because Mm. it's not just Uncut Gems. It's good time as well. Like, their, their work is just insane in keeping you there and great cinema does that it hold, it grabs you and it doesn't let you go until the credits and i i can't wait to to be able to to experience that in a big room on a big screen again if you're thinking back to pirates i'm not asking you to say specifically is there one scene that you just can't wait to be in a cinema with oh, you know right. your friends your family your cast is there like one scene in particular like you can't wait oh, for that shared experience oh my god uh, so it's not a spoiler by any means because we we go to there's two scenes the first one that comes to mind is the big party. So we took over Ministry of Sound and recreated Twice as Nice from 1999. So we had 200-odd extras all wearing Moschino, Iceberg, Versace, Valentino, the leather biker jackets, the Averixes, the Patrick Cox, the Gucci shoes, all of that stuff. We had everyone wearing the clothes of the era. We had Pied Piper DJing, MC Creed, MC PSG, MC in, and they just did a set for real. They just did it. And we shot the scene as the kids going through the party and like 
having the best time and there's like champagne popping and there's bottles in the air. And the way that we cut it, it goes from one massive garage classic and it hard cuts oh. to another song. And oh. in the screenings that I've done so far, anybody that knows those records or that was there jumps out of their seat because <laughs> it just takes you back to being in that room. And when I talk to my younger siblings who are in their early 20s about being in a room with 2,000 strangers dancing and like it just sounds and, and you're in a shirt and, and, and a suit or like you're in hard shoes that it just blows their mind that you know this was a thing and that was how I spent my teens so there's that but there's also a moment where the boys do something which I won't give away and they're celebrating in the car and they're driving around in a yellow Peugeot 205 and they're blasting boo miss dynamite and they're singing along uh, line for line saying every word and when that moment happens it's just pure joy it's just joy I grew up loving Wayne's World and I didn't have Bohemian Rhapsody on CD but when I saw them have that moment in that car I said to myself in my early teens I'm going to recreate this moment for me with my song and I've done that when you're staging a scene like that with like you know the, the, I guess the actors are like teenagers now right were they, did they have the same response to that music as you did? Or were they like, oh, come on, granddad, this is old stuff. So <laughs> the craziest thing about it is that the actors are all in their early 20s. And right. one of the guys, Reda, who's an amazing actor, he, Reda Elazor, he turned 21 during our hiatus between lockdown. He wasn't alive when this film is set. And it's crazy because I had to educate all of them on what UK Garage actually was. I did a lot of research on... John Hughes and the movies of that era and how he was able to get those performances out of those young actors. So I decided to take the boys away and we went away for a weekend before we started shooting and just sort of walk the beach, cook together. We went to one of my mentors is Richard Curtis and he gave me one of his writing places, like one of his houses that he uses to write. And there's a beach right on the doorstep and I took the boys there and we spent the weekend just listening to garage music, watching classic teen movies together talking about Garage and I've got like Spoonie on the phone and Lonyo on the phone and <laughs> loads of Garage legends and they just sort of explained to the boys what the scene was, what the slang was, things that you said, things you didn't say. I just felt as though I was giving these guys a crash course and an education on a culture that just hasn't been documented. And on the one hand, I was really excited because they got it and it clicked and they suddenly loved these records and they were really into the music. But it broke my heart because it's never been recorded. The photography of you and Spencer, and that's pretty much it. There's not much more that documents that incredible capsule that happened before those records found their way into the chart. You know, at one point, So Solid weren't a chart-topping group driving around in Audi TTs. There were a bunch of kids from Battersea who just were onto something special and had kids all over the country going crazy. They were rock stars. And to be able to capture that lightning in the bottle and, and also elevate it in the way that it deserves. You know, we've got a million and one books and documentaries and movies about Scar, but this movement was just as influential. And to be able to give it the pedestal it deserves is a huge thing. And I'm so glad the boys bought into it, even though they had no idea about the intricacies of it when they were cast. It's so sweet hearing you talk about mentors because it's something that it feels that people are wising up about in the last couple of years is the importance of having a mentor. And clearly you mentioned Jan Demange, great director, and Richard Curtis. First of all, I'd love to know what you take from Richard Curtis in terms of influence and inspiration because he's almost, I mean, he's an absolute titan of a, of a filmmaker and a writer, but often pigeonholed maybe yes. in certain ways. But then also how important is it for you then to 
keep it going down yeah. to the next generation? Well, I, I mentor um, a lot of people, six people personally, but I've also started a platform called Pass the Mic where we mentor, encourage, empower young people. And they're not just buzzwords. Like we genuinely are doing something really special, so much so that, you know, we are actually getting people jobs in the industry now, which is awesome and so fulfilling for me because the thing that I say to everybody that I mentor is, I don't want anything from you. I just want one promise and that is that you do this for somebody else and you know I'm, I'm not West Indian but there's that beautiful West Indian thing of each one teach one and I think that you have to pass down the things that you've learned otherwise what's the point in learning it in the first place and uh, empowering people is in a weird way empowering yourself so to know that someone like Richard for instance who doesn't owe me anything is willing to open up his home to me to allow me to go there and write and also share that experience with young actors and give them something that they can aspire to as well as myself is beautiful. So I think it's incredibly important because Jan had me on set in Los Angeles when he was shooting White Boy Rick and to introduce me to Matthew McConaughey for God's sakes and to know that he and I have the same editor and Chris Wyatt and Chris is sat there cutting and this is the guy who I've been locked in a room with is cutting Matthew bloody McConaughey. And it just makes you feel, because Jan brought me onto that set, because he introduced me to this Oscar-winning actor, because the same editor that we share is sat to my left, it just made it feel possible. And that is the thing that I know that I have to do for others because I'm just starting my journey as a filmmaker. It's hilarious. I'm 30 years into my career and I'm new in, in this lane. And I love it because I appreciate how much has been done for me and I understand the value of doing it for others as well. I think that's a really, really nice place to to bring in our final question. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you want to ask it this time, Rihanna? I'll ask it, yeah. sure. So, Reggie, snacks. <laughs> snacks at the cinema. General feeling. Sweet or salty popcorn? Neither. Do you have a preferred snack? Okay, so I've gone through phases when it comes okay. to my cinema uh, confectionery choices. For a long time... I was just a packet of minstrels and a mint tea, right? That was me when I progressed and I thought I was a grown-up. But (laughs) there are some films that you can't watch without popcorn. And just as much as I love to go and watch something by Ari Aster in a really lovely cinema or whatever, I also love to go and watch the big Marvel movie with my pals with the big Pepsi on a Friday night in the seat that rumbles. Like, I like <laughs> to do that as well. And the there's, there's yeah. nothing wrong with doing that too. So when I go to the rumble seat cinema, <laughs> I have the biggest popcorn you can get with sweet and salt, but layered because sweet and savory go very well together. So I ask specifically for a layer of each. So oh, wow. the shaking doesn't happen. That way you don't disturb people around you because the whole shaking of the popcorn thing to mix the bits... <laughs> No, 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 no. If they layer it for you, you're good to go. And if you really want to have a fat night, you get a packet of minstrels and you sprinkle it on the top. And that was something that they do in America. I spent a lot of time in America when we can travel. And whenever I go to the movies there, they will say, would you like a topper, sir? It's like, what the hell is a topper? And then they give you a packet of sweets or chocolates for free to sprinkle on top of your popcorn. And that's next level. I've seen them do that in Whiplash. Like, I mm-hmm. remember that scene in Whiplash where he goes in with his dad and they're in the cinema and they mix all the chocolates in. And I was like, that is... Next level. Brilliant. Next that level. is like a game changer. And I've never done it because it just feels so naughty to have chocolate and popcorn at the cinema. Oh, no, no. You've got to choose wisely. So I advise minstrels, 
on top, get a grab bag, maybe mm-hmm. buy it outside the cinema and bring it in. So you've got a big <laughs> one, two or three yeah. of them and go, go hell for leather. Good times. Oh, loving, loving these tips, Rose. <laughs> <laughs> so let's recap that night then. So it's La Haine at, was it Screen on the Green? Yeah, yeah. So bag of minstrels. You can get the bag of minstrels over the road at the corner shop beforehand. Take it in. Sweet and salty popcorn. Layered. layered just right. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like a great night. Yeah. What are you drinking? Do you take a drink in with you? I'll get a mint tea normally. I used to always go for like a big sweet soda type thing, but... That's only when I go Rumble Cinema. Now it's a, a <laughs> bottle of water and I just want to watch my film and get into it. Keeping it and if it's, yeah, if it's flipping something like Uncut Gems, you don't even touch the water. You don't even touch the snacks because <laughs> you're just being, you're just arrested by the film the entire time. So it massively depends on the film as to whether you get through the snacks or not. Reggie Yates, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. No worries. Um, thank you so much for having me on and, Like I said, this is the first time I'm talking about pirates and it's bloody strange, but I love it. So thank you for indulging me. What a lovely, lovely conversation that was. Huge thank you to Reggie. And thank you as well to all our guests. What a week it's been, Rihanna. It feels like we've been on podcast holiday around the country, maybe even over the pond as well, doing exactly what I love doing on holiday, much to the frustration of my partner, which is going to cinemas. And if you've missed any of the episodes we've made this week got to go and check them out we've got episodes with harris dickinson neve alger sarah gavron and morfith clark all available in our feed right now and if you missed it or you just want to relive all the fun you can watch the british independent film awards back on youtube and facebook right now well michael all that talk of cinemas has got me ready to go back to one which hopefully we can very very soon absolutely and maybe i'll see you rihanna and maybe some of our listeners on those lovely red folding seats with popcorn in hand soon. For now, on This Is My Cinema, though, it's time to bring up the lights. We hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. This Is My Cinema is a Little Dot Studios production for Biffa. The show is hosted by Rihanna Dillon and Michael Leader. It's produced by Jake Cunningham, Annie Hughes and Harold McShield. And we're edited by Content Is Queen. Content Is Queen.